a day of romance. You can almost smell the roses and taste the milk chocolate. But beyond all the modern adornments, Valentine's Day has a murky and dark past, full of strange rituals, quirky superstitions, and fascinating lore. This episode will put a new spin on the day of love. I'm Vanessa K. Eccles, and this is Fabled. Another quiet evening at home. Sunlight glistens into the window. Tiny dust particles dance above the wood floors. Our small downtown apartment smells of bread from the bakery next door. The smell alone has added 10 pounds. Voices like whispers reach the second-story bedroom. He'd left me flowers on the wide windowsill. Blood-red roses in a milk-glass face, as if to show his love to the world below. I sniff the perfume on my wrists as I snuggle into the armchair, cuddled into a blanket. I reach for the book on the side table but decide against it. I'd love to escape, to find my romance in a story, but it'd be short-lived. He'd come home eventually, and our everyday activities would resume. Me over the stove or folding laundry, while he sits in front of the fireplace with his daily paper, drowning in the gossip and drama of the outside world. Then he'd move on to his magazines, or perhaps his latest biography. Jazz music catches my ears, and I feel myself sway a little. I wonder where it's coming from, the young gentleman on the corner of Broad and Main again. I can almost see his mouth pulled tight on the reed, cheeks stretched with breath, shoulders rising and dropping as he gave the saxophone all he had. As the light faded, The music and voices grew louder. Our bedside lamp gave off a pink glow from the silk scarf flung over the top. The room with its teal paisley wallpaper and four-post bed looked more beautiful in the dull light, shadows in all the right places, hiding every imperfection and highlighting the accents that made our home home. These walls once held laughter and sweet words and moments, all of which had somehow faded in time, a slow moving from perfection to monotony. How had I allowed it? We allowed it. We played through the motions like those actors do in those black and white films I love so much. We knew which lines to say, how to behave, and how to give the appearance of love. But love itself? Well, it hung its hat somewhere else. And I began to wonder if he was doing the same thing. On the sidewalk below, a couple walks arm in arm toward the picture palace. And I can't help but wonder how long Cupid's poisonous arrow will keep them in the foggy passion 
of new romance. I wished them well, wished them forever. But I wondered if love could ever exist forever. Or maybe love ages as we do, grows more wrinkled and withered, grays into a murky version of its former self. Perhaps it's wiser too, more callous, less blinded by new beauty. I try to conjure the idea into a person, an example, but fail. Does love stretch and grow bigger, becoming more ugly and fat as time passes, as couples often do? Does it lose its bloom by digging in its roots year after year? Does what was once exterior, our youthful good looks, morph into naughty fingers grippling dirt beneath the cold, wet ground. A flower, a new romance, is one singular thing, but as time marches, so too do our roots, scattering in a million different directions, focused on keeping alive, fed, and fastly moving into the next phase of life. Never again will I be his focus. He's accomplished this task, and now he has others to conquer. He has that raise he wants at work, those children he dreams of having, and the retirement that he hopes to have one day so far from now. I cannot fathom it. I cannot fathom us so long from now. For me, we'll always be here, a few years from our youth, with some dusty promises we both have forgotten. He'd said forever, and so did I. We'd meant it too. But somewhere, at some point, we'd lost ourselves in adulthood and walked away from passionate conversation and passionate nights. We'd given up our romance. He chose long nights at work, and I turned to novels for my escape. I'd given him my best, and he had given me his. I truly believe it. I go to the small mahogany desk and scribble him a note. Every flower dies after giving its best to those who barely notice. Your once love, Rosalind. I lock the door behind me. A cold shiver runs down my back as I step into the music-filled street. is believed to originate in ancient Roman times. Originally, a festival called Lupercalia took place in the middle of February and evolved into what we now know as the Day of Love. Lupercalia was an ancient Roman festival that took place from February 13th through the 15th. The details are a little murky now, but scholars believe that it was a time of celebrating the ancient god deity who guarded herds from being slain by wolves. This protection was given by the she-wolf legend figure, who nursed Romulus and Remus. The festival also centered around fertility and the god of Faunus. During the festival, men and women were paired off through a lottery system. And during the festival, men would sacrifice animals and then parade down the streets, whipping women with the hides of the animals they'd killed. But the women weren't afraid of this brutal, beastly action. 
Instead, they would line up to be beaten. Legend had it that being beaten would also make the women fertile. During the matchmaking lottery, the couple would be together during the entire festival. It was a trial period of sorts to see if they were compatible for a longer relationship. Pope Gelasius I swapped Lupercalia with Valentine's Day, but it wasn't until the 14th century that it became the romantic symbol it is today. Interestingly, there were a couple of Christian martyrs named Valentine, but it's believed that a priest who was killed in 270 CE by Emperor Claudius II is the Valentine responsible for the legend. It's been said that while he was in prison, he signed a note to the warden's daughter, quote, from your Valentine. Some believe that the priest had not only befriended the young woman, but he had also healed her from blindness. Other scholars believe that the source comes from St. Valentine of Terni, a bishop. The holiday is known to be named after him, but there's speculation as to if the two saints are actually the same person. Another interesting addition to the legend is that St. Valentine secretly married couples, defying the orders of the emperor, who believed an unmarried soldier was a better warrior than a wed one. A culmination of these legends has led to the associations of love and romance. And of course, Valentine's Day has been idealized by writers for centuries, and now through the entire entertainment industry. But because of writers like Chaucer and Shakespeare, the popularity of celebrating Valentine's Day spread throughout Britain and all of Europe. Some believe Chaucer's poem, The Parliament of Fowls, is why Valentine's Day is on February 14th. The poem suggests that this is the day the birds come together to choose their mate. It was believed in his day that birds came together in the middle of February to produce eggs. This is why Europeans began sending love letters during the bird mating season. In February, the Duke of Orléans, who was a prisoner in the Tower of London, wrote a letter to his wife that said he was lovesick, and he called her his, quote, very gentle valentine. Shakespeare also had a part to play in Valentine's story. In Hamlet, lovesick Ophelia calls herself Hamlet's Valentine. And we can't very well talk about Valentine's Day without discussing Cupid. Much like in episode 30, Beauty and the Beast, Cupid and Psyche shared a complicated romance that wasn't based on attraction, at least not from the lady initially. It's believed that Beauty and the Beast's inspiration came from Cupid and Psyche, the ancient chronicle of the Latin novel Metamorphosis, which was written in the 2nd century. Cupid and Psyche is believed to be one of the oldest fairy tales in existence. In the story, Psyche is banished to a mountaintop by Venus, who is jealous that Psyche's beauty is keeping people from worshipping her as the love goddess. Venus then bids Cupid to work her revenge on the beautiful Psyche. He is to shoot her with an arrow so that she will fall in love with a beast. Upon seeing her, he cannot do it. Instead, he scratches himself with the arrow, making him fall in love with the first thing he sees, Psyche. Psyche's father, the king, worries for his daughter since she is yet to marry, so he seeks out an oracle who tells him that his son-in-law will be a dragon-like beast. 
She's then prepared for a transition of the unknown, a ceremony where she falls asleep and wakes somewhere else. She stumbles upon a house and a garden. An invisible person tells her to eat and enjoy herself. She's then guided to a bedroom with a being she cannot see. She looks forward to the being's visits, but seeing him is forbidden, and soon she becomes pregnant. With her family's insistence, and at her own curiosity, she decides she must know who this being is. She brings a knife and a lamp and is surprised to see the most lovely creature she's ever seen. In the shock, she gets cut by one of Cupid's arrows and spills hot oil from the lamp on him. Startled, he flies away. She then begins searching the earth for her lost lover. Venus, now able to get her revenge, has two of her servants beat Psyche. Then she sends the desperate Psyche on several impossible tasks. The first one is to sort a huge heap of seeds, lentils, and beans. A merciful ant helps her complete the task before dawn. The second task is to get golden wool from an evil sheep. She hopes to drown herself, but a magical reed saves her, and she's able to snatch some golden wool from the briars. The third task is that she must collect black water from two rivers. Zeus sends an eagle to help her collect the water. The final task sends Psyche to the underworld. While there, she must obtain a box of beauty so that Venus's looks could be restored. Feeling like this is impossible, she plans to throw herself from a tower, but the tower then tells her how to complete her task. When Psyche retrieves the box, she's overcome by curiosity and wishes to make herself more beautiful, so she opens it and falls into a deep, sleep-like coma. Cupid's wound from the hot oil has healed during this time, and he escapes his mother's grasp. He finds Psyche, wakes her up, and takes her to Venus to present the box. He begs Zeus to give Psyche immortality, which he agrees to, and Venus is warned not to bother Psyche anymore. Cupid and Psyche are married, and the two live happily ever after. Just like folklore, I've always been fascinated by superstitions, and Valentine's Day has some really odd ones. Here are a few of my favorites. A young woman would eventually marry the first free man she meets on Valentine's Day. And the tradition of receiving roses is attributed to Venus, the Roman goddess of love and beauty. If a girl sees an owl on Valentine's Day, she's likely never to get married and remain a spinster. One of the most common traditions is the lore of seeing various types of birds or animals during the day. Seeing specific ones would predict professions or tendencies your future husband would have. For example, if you saw a dove, you would mate for life, and if you beheld a bluebird, you would be happy with someone. But if you saw a goldfinch, it would be a man of wealth. But whatever you do, avoid seeing squirrels on Valentine's Day. That's supposed to mean that you're going to marry someone cheap. Another one is if you found a glove on the road on February 14th, whomever the glove belongs to is your future spouse. Sort of reminiscent of Cinderella, don't you think? And then there's the one about the apple. If you are to cut an apple in half, however many seeds there are inside, indicate the number of children you will have. 
wooden spoons used to be carved and given as gifts in wells. And they were decorated with hearts, keys, and keyholes, meaning that you unlock my heart. Perhaps the strangest, but possibly my favorite superstition surrounding this holiday includes a graveyard. On the night before Valentine's Day, a girl should head to the cemetery, and at the stroke of midnight, she should run around the church twelve times. If she is to do this just as the legend says, she will see her future lover appear as a ghost. Of course, Valentine's Day isn't all about love, as is apparent by now. In the 1840s, the anti-Valentine began to make its appearance. Often called the Vinegar Valentine, these were notes sent to unwanted suitors. But it isn't such a surprise that in medieval times, the tradition of Valentines and tokens of love began to really become popular. During that time, women would place their names on pieces of paper and put them in jars. When an eligible man drew her name, he'd pin it on his sleeve and be her valentine for the week. This is where the term, wearing your heart on your sleeve, is believed to come from. And it wasn't until the Victorian era that the Valentine Day cards we recognize today began to be shared. Initially, cards were handmade and included lots of hearts, birds, lace, and flowers. These cards traditionally were sent anonymously. And then, in 1913, Hallmark cards began to be mass-produced, making the Valentine card what we know today. According to an NPR article, sales for Valentine's Day are somewhere in the $17 to $18 billion range. Like most things, the commercialization of holidays often sours the true meaning of them. Not that Valentine's Day has ever really had a pure past, but if we were to choose it as the day to show our love, perhaps it's best to do it in more unique ways. After all, love is more than flowers, expensive jewelry, chocolates, and giant teddy bears no one knows what to do with later. Instead of buying things, sharing an experience together may be the most loving way we can express ourselves. Did you know that one billion Valentine's Day cards are exchanged in the United States alone every year? Second only to Christmas, Valentine's Day is a season of card giving and women are the ones doing most of the card giving. They purchase 85% of Valentine's. Come on guys, you've got to step it up. (laughs) And 3% of Valentine's Day cards actually go to our pets. Yeah, we cannot forget our fur babies. Despite the fact that California produces 65% of American roses, most of Valentine's Day roses actually come from South America. 110 million roses, mainly red, are delivered in the three-day period surrounding Valentine's Day. Verona, where Shakespeare set his infamous Romeo and Juliet, receives 1,000 letters every year addressed to Juliet. And the first Valentine's Day candy box was invented in the late 1800s by Richard Cadbury. Another interesting fact is that Alexander Graham Bell applied for the patent on the telephone on Valentine's Day of 1876. This holiday has such a strange and wonderful mix of history, folklore, traditions, and superstitions. It's a great reminder that everything has deeper roots than can be seen on the surface. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention another Valentine tradition shared by many. Often celebrated the day before Valentine's Day, 
Galentine's Day is a celebration of female friendship over food and drinks, made famous by NBC's Parks and Recreation, one of my favorite shows. You know, researching is like looking at a field of rabbit holes and looking forward to jumping down every one. In one of said rabbit holes, I stumbled upon a valentine to Edgar Allan Poe from his wife, Virginia. It said, Ever with thee I wish to roam, dearest my life is thine. Give me a cottage for my home in a rich old cypress vine, removed from the world with its sin and care and the tattling of my tongues. Love alone shall guide us when we are there. Love shall heal my weakened lungs. And oh, the tranquil hours we'll spend, never wishing that others may see. Perfect ease we'll enjoy without thinking to lend ourselves to the world and its glee. Ever peaceful and blissful we'll be. It was signed Saturday, February 14th, 1846. After Poe's wife's death, he began courting fellow poet Sarah Helen Whitman, and she shared this comical yet charming poem with him. O oh, thou grim and ancient raven from the night's plutonic shore, often dreams thy ghastly pinions wave and flutter round my door, off thy shadow dims the moonlight sleeping on my chamber floor. Romeo talks of white dove trooping amid crows athwart the night, but to see thy dark wings swooping down the silvery path of light, Amid swans and dovelets stooping, were to me a nobler sight, oft amid the twilight glooming, round some grim ancestral tower, in the lurid distance looming, I can see thy pinions lower, hear thy sudden storm cry booming, through the lonely midnight hour. Oft, this workday world forgetting, from its toll curtain snug, by the sparkling ember sitting, on the richly bordered rug. Something round about me flitting glimmers like a golden bug. Dreamily its path I follow in a beeline to the moon, till into some dreamy hollow of the midnight sinking soon. Lo, he glides away before me, and I lose the golden boon. Oft like Proserpine I wander on the night's plutonic shore, hoping, fearing while I ponder on thy loved and lost Lenore till thy voice like distant thunder sounds across the distant moor. From thy wing one purple feather wafted over my chamber floor, like a shadow over the heather, charms my vagrant fancy more than all the flowers I used to gather on Adelia's velvet shore. Then, O oh, grim and ghastly raven, wilt thou to my heart and ear be a raven true as ever, flapped his wings and croaked despair? Not a bird that roams the forest shall our lofty, airy share. Whitman and Poe later became engaged, but called off their engagement a short time later. You could hear the reminiscent tone and flow of the Raven and Annabelle Lee in her sort of parody to Poe on that Valentine's Day. The Day of Love has an interesting history, but it's our past Valentine's Days that mean the most to us. It's the kind words, the shared hugs, and the stolen kisses, the breakfasts in bed, and the three words that make our hearts stop whispered over dinner. 
As joyous as it is for some, it can be incredibly difficult for others. In times like these, we lean on our friends and our extended families, and even our online community. So today, tell someone what they mean to you. You don't need to buy anything. I've come to realize that words are the greatest gift. Fabled is produced by me, Vanessa K. Eccles, with music by Kevin McLeod and Epidemic Sound, and research assistance by Whitney Zahar. I'm excited to announce a new member of the Fabled team. Holly Cornetto will be writing for the Fabled Journal for the next several months. Welcome, Holly! And special thanks to our newest patron, Sarah. I truly appreciate your generosity, and I'm so grateful for your support. If you'd like to send a little love my way, consider becoming a patron. All you have to do is visit patreon.com forward slash fable collective. Wishing you a very happy Valentine's Day, friend. Sending all my love. Until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>